Hello and welcome to Carmichael Clan Radio, the official podcast of Clan Carmichael USA. I'm your host, Scott Carmichael. On today's show, I'm joined again by the Eagle Gate newsletter editor and show co-host, Leah Hargrove, for an interview with the Professor Gerard Carruthers of the University of Glasgow's Center for Robert Burns Studies. Dr. Carruthers is the Francis Hutchinson Chair of Scottish Literature and author of multiple books, articles, and other productions. With Burns Night just around the corner, we wanted to sit down with Dr. Carruthers to talk about Scotland's greatest poet, Robert Burns. Who was the man that captures the heart of all Scots, and what is it that makes him easily the most celebrated among Scottish poets? In this episode, we also explore the history and traditions of Burns Night suppers and celebrations that are held each year in countries all around the world, and talk about some of the highlights of any Burns supper. Before we get started, I want to remind you all to visit Clan Carmichael USA's website at www.clancarmichaelusa.com to learn more about how you can get involved in Clan Carmichael USA. If you're not a member already, we hope you'll consider joining and becoming a member in what we feel is the best clan out there. Also, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Clan Carmichael Scholarship Fund or the Clan Carmichael Restoration Fund. There is now a donate button right at the top of the Clan Carmichael USA homepage, so donating has never been easier. Your donations help to allow us to do more to preserve Carmichael heritage, to educate Carmichaels around the world about all things Carmichael, and to reach more Carmichaels through our newsletter and podcast. Again, visit www.clancarmichaelusa.com to learn more or to become a member today. Is there for honest poverty that hings his heed and all that? The coward slave, we pass him by. We dare be poor. For all that, for all that and all that, our toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea's stamp, the man's the gowd for all that. What though on hamely fare we dine, wear hodden grey and all that. Give fools their silks and knaves their wine, a man's a man for all that. For all that and all that, their tinsels show and all that. The honest man, though e'er so poor, is king of men for all that. And now... Let's talk more Burns. All right, so Dr. Gerard Carruthers, welcome to uh, Carmichael Clan Radio. I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. Thank you. So we wanted to talk about, with the upcoming special day to all Scots, Burns Night, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, Robert Burns. And I have to admit, I am shamefully uninformed about Robert Burns. Uh, as a you know board member of Clan Carmichael USA, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I don't know much about Burns. And so that's why I wanted to make this episode and time it with Burns Night and have an expert come on to the show and tell us a little bit about uh, Scotland's poet, Robert Burns. So, you know, and and I guess we'll talk a little, we'll talk more about the occasion itself, Burns Night, and, and some of the festivities and traditions and history behind those things. But tell us a little bit about Burns. My question, my biggest question is really, what makes Burns the poet of Scotland and not someone else? Like, what is what was so special about Robert Burns that, that he's just renowned throughout Scotland? Well, I think there are two things in general you might think about. He pushes buttons for the Scots, by writing about Scottish landscape, 
portraying the Scots language, by writing about current affairs, which in the 1780s and 90s certainly chimed with what people were interested in. But then the writings about Scotland transfer around the world to North America, to the English-speaking world, to other places like Russia, and he becomes truly a world and international writer. Old Lang Syne is the second or third most song sung in the world. Happy Birthday is probably the first uh, or the, 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 the most often sung song. So this is someone who has world reach from his very Scottish location, which you might think in some ways wouldn't necessarily chime with other places, but he writes about peasant culture, he writes about uh, good, honest food, primitive food uh, being the backbone of healthy people rather than McDonaldization and uh, consumerism, etc. So he stands for a lot of basic values that peasant cultures, and not only peasant cultures throughout the world, uh, recognise. One, one wee example I would give you about his appeal. On the one hand, he reaches America, and someone like Henry Ford, for instance, collected Burns' manuscripts. And American Republicans tend to read Burns an example of someone who, if you've got the talent, mm-hmm. you can make it. At the other end of uh, the spectrum, we've got Russia, where he is the proletarian poet par excellence, read as a poet of the people. The fact is that his writing, in many ways, allows a lot of different things in because he writes about common humanity, and a lot of people interpret that common humanity in different ways. Dr. Carthus, I have a, a question about his worldwide popularity paired with like his, his very localized dialect. And I, I know that's one reason why he's so popular in Scotland, that he often wrote in Scots. Um, I have to read a lot of his poems with a glossary. And I, you know, I just wonder, like, uh, what is it about his poems that seems to to transcend his language into other cultures so well? The more you read that aloud to an English-speaking person, the Scots actually isn't all that difficult, I would suggest. And it's also a bit like New York rappers. You know, their language is very precise to a place, but it translates all around the world. You know, half my students are immersed in New York rap and techno. And so there's always access when people make access for themselves. And in the same way, Burns' Scots language goes around the world. And a lot of Scots here and abroad, expatriate Scots, they like it because guess what? It's a wee bit different from English. It sounds a bit different. It's a bit gimmicky. So that is part of the appeal. But also, even in Scots, when you spend a bit of time reading Robert Burns, you realise a lot of the poetry is quite profound, philosophical even. Um, And so, for instance, in one of his most famous poems, To a Louse, Um, we've got him riffing or even rapping on Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, right? The world thinks that Oprah Winfrey invented sympathy. She didn't. It was actually the Scottish philosopher Adam Smith. And Burns is reading Adam Smith. And Smith's idea of sympathy is we should put ourselves in each other's place and imagine how someone is feeling to sympathise with them. And Burns' To a Louse is about... uh, a young babe called Jenny, and she's standing in church, and she's aware that she's a babe, and she realises that the male gaze, as the feminist would say, is on her, and all the men are looking at her. But that's not quite the full story, because there's an insect crawling on her, and that's what they're looking at. So babe Jenny has got this horrible thing on her. And the end of the poem, 
Burns riffing on Adam Smith says, Oh, would some power the gift he gives to see ourselves as other seers? If only we could see ourselves as other seers. And Adam Smith says that's a good thing, you know, uh, exchanging point of view. But at the end of the poem, Burns is sort of making a joke and saying, it's not always good to see ourselves as other seers. And so, you know, we've got the Scots language, we've got localised scene, but we've got enlightenment philosophy, and we've got a kind of joke that travels into a louse, um, again, is one of those poems that achieves a world-wide fame. It's translated, like many Burns poems, into at least 43 languages, including Chinese, Faroese, Latin. The list goes on and on. A second question with that. Burns was certainly like keenly aware of how other people saw him. Uh, it seems like his, his pride was easily set off if he was meeting with the aristocracy and felt that they looked down on him in any way. He's very proud of being a farmer and a man of the fields. Um, but as much as he was aware of how people saw himself, he didn't seem, I, the more I read about him, he didn't seem to have a really deep sense of awareness about his own actions. He, he seemed to be very much a man of emotion and it caused all sorts of trouble for not just him, but the people around him in his life. Um, one of the authors I read last night said that like Byron Burns' early death prevented him to growing into a moral manhood. Do we see that reflected in his, like his poems seem very introspective, even though his life doesn't. How do we bring those two things together? Yeah, well, I mean, he dies at 37, so he was all the man he was ever going to be. But nonetheless, his views might have changed. Like us all, he was very good at reflecting on other people and maybe not always so good at reflecting on himself. Uh, he's a man of a notorious record with the ladies, um, at least 13 pregnancies and at least five women. Uh, that's nothing like compared to, let's say, uh, Marlon Brando or Bob Marley, for instance. But nonetheless, he is a notorious womanizer. So we've got that side of him. At the same time, genuinely, Robert Burns likes aristocratic women because he knows that they will speak to him, unlike their brothers. And so you find him corresponding, talking about ideas, sending his poetry to these women, because he can have a conversation with them. So time and time again in Burns's life, you find this sort of two-sided thing, where his behaviour, where, as you say, his emotions are off the leash. But then, like us all, he has his more reflective moments, where he writes letters, where he reveals to friends that he feels very bad, his behaviour has been poor. And basically, one of the problems with, with Burns is that people try and pin him down as one solid, consistent individual. And like us all, he has feet of clay. He can be a very good person. He can be a very bad person. But ultimately, what we have are the 232 poems and the 400 songs. And in many ways, he's more a songwriter than a poet. He might or might not be Scotland's greatest poet. He's certainly Scotland's greatest songwriter. And although it's slightly cheesy, he's the nearest that we have to Lennon and McCartney. He's songwriting mad. And when he writes these songs, he identifies with lots of different perspectives, including the female perspective at times. He has a promiscuous sympathy. You know, people talk about his promiscuous behaviour, but he has a promiscuous Sympathy identifies with lots of perspectives, maybe too many perspectives, so that he writes about Scottish history. He's one of the guys that begins to bring Mary, Queen of Scots, into focus as the modern female icon that she is today. You know, Burns comes from a Protestant background. Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Catholic Stuart queen. 
uh, from a couple of hundred years before. He will write sympathetically about gypsies, about beggars, you know, as well as a queen. So he's a man whose mind, typically as a writer, is able to reach out and imagine what it might be to be a queen, yeah, or a beggar. Yeah, I was impressed by that when I was reading more and more about him and his poems, because uh, initially, you know, sort of the summary you get mentions these 12 or 13 children with all these different women, um, several of the women who lived destitute lives because of his fling with them, um, you know, one who died in poverty. So, so I entered it first thinking, oh, he's a terrible man. He's very much a man of his times. So he doesn't appreciate women. He doesn't take them seriously. But then reading his letters to like, um, the elderly Mrs. Dunlop and um, his true love Clorinda and um, Maria Riddell. Like, like you said, he, he really does seem to have a deep sympathy with people who are very different from him that I think makes him really unique for his time and also helped me appreciate his poetry more. Yeah, I, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, uh, particularly if you look at some of his contemporaries that did not hold women in quite so high esteem as Robert Burns. Although I read one a uh, commentator that said that in life and in poetry, Burns could never resist putting his hand on a woman's thigh. And that really tickled me. <laughs> yeah, he, he genuinely believes that women have brains, has, have minds of their own. At the same time, his bad behavior with women at points is uh, sometimes because he has the opportunity. He's a minor celebrity, at least a minor celebrity. And he has more opportunity both to behave badly and also to collect songs and write great poetry than most folk. So, you know, he does he does all of that. And, you know, you can't shy away from it. The the thing that always takes me aback, in his Dumfries years, uh, his wife is at home looking after the kids, and he's out, and she knows that he's out with the 18-year-old barmaid, Helen Park. So... There are points where his behaviour is just what it is. You can comment on it. You can condemn it if you want. But also, out of that bad behaviour as well as good behaviour comes a very interesting um, oeuvre of, of songs as well as, as poems. He's one of the first really bad boys of poetry. You mentioned Byron earlier on, who's certainly a bad boy, but Burns is his forerunner. And that's why Byron likes him, because Burns is living life to the full. You know, Burns lives a lifestyle that probably comes up to about number eight in a scale of one to ten with modern rock and roll stars. So he does, he, he lives at large a wee bit, but he could have lived at larger. Um, so, you know, we I think we have to remember this when we, we judge him. And, you know, modern day celebrities who apologize for nothing, they turn up and they say, I made a mistake or that wasn't me, it was uh, not the real me. Uh, that That's a kind of modern perspective that we've developed to get people off the hook. Uh, not to excuse Burns at all, but his behaviour is nowhere near as bad as about 90% of celebrities that we have these days in the English-speaking world. That's actually it. I was, I was thinking about that, and I wondered if, you know, if there was a celebrity today that, had, that was as notorious for the womanizing as Burns was, if they would be, for lack of a better word, cancelled. You know, if they would... if they would be, you know, cast out from the from the public. But is it is there a, is there a movement now in Scotland to punish Burns? Not that he can be punished now, but like, is there an effort to, you know, cancel him? Or is it 
just accepted that like, Hey, this is what made Burns. This behavior allowed him to write these things. Yeah. Well, um, as I say, I wouldn't want to defend Burns, but I think there have been very stupid comments in recent years comparing him to mm. Harvey Weinstein, saying that he's a sex pest. Or even there's one letter, the notorious horse litter letter, where it where some people have claimed he's boasting about rape. Now, in that letter, he talks about having sex with his wife on the floor in a barn. I said, I hadn't seen her for a long time, and we got together... And I performed really well. So it's male bravado, it's boasting, it's kind of unpleasant in that way. But then, if he's to be believed, he says, at the end of that, my gene cried out with pleasure. So those people who want to claim that that's rape, are they claiming that rape victims are crying out with pleasure? It's certainly not rape. If that's, you know, if we're, if we're going to go with Burns's account, which is what they're starting from. So you're absolutely right. We get this cancel culture uh, where, you know, Burns, his record with the ladies is not impeccable, if we want to judge that, but we get lots of great uh, songs out of it, and that's, you know, at least a consolation prize. But, you know, let's not try and, and judge people who are mm-hmm. long dead. The other area where people try and begin to think about cancelling Burns is over slavery. Burns wrote songs against slavery, but for a period in 1786 when he felt that his fortunes weren't very good, he seriously contemplated going to the West Indies uh, to work on the slave plantations. But the fact is, he mm-hmm. did not go. And so, you know, what are we to do? Are we to blame people for having uh, thoughts about things that they don't follow through with? And in those days, you know, I mean, 90-odd percent of Scotland and Britain and maybe America in some ways had some links to the slave trade. You know, we hadn't thought it through. Disgusting, disgraceful. Uh, we we know better, or we think we know better, but um, I think we need to be very careful about judging the past. Uh, Burns isn't available to us, but his work is. That's not to say you can't judge the man to some extent through the work, but I think we need to be a wee bit careful. And my problem with the present-day cancel culture, in some ways it lacks humility. In some ways, it's not willing to give people who are living a fair voice, maybe those we disagree with. And certainly when you start cancelling the past, you run the risk, actually, of whitewashing the past. If the past is throwing up lessons that we can learn from uh, that are bad things, then let's not paint over that badness. But, you know, as you sort of imply, it's a very difficult moral minefield. That's a really interesting point about whitewashing history i'm a a history teacher at in the high school here in my in my city and that's one thing that that we think about a lot with america's founding fathers who were who would in many cases write about you know slavery being evil but then also be slave owners themselves and um i've heard a jefferson scholar north dakota native clay jenkinson talk about jefferson about how you know they they were living in a different time they didn't have the benefit of looking back at that 200 plus years in the future and being able to have that perspective that, and so that's, that's interesting that, that Burns is sort of being dealt with similarly as Americans are thinking about their own founding fathers who, and you know, Jefferson's kind of an interesting uh, comparison because he was sort of a womanizer also and a slave owner. And if he were, if he were alive today would, would not be looked well upon for those things. Um, so that's interesting that that's how, 
Scotland is looking at Burns too, and actually sort of um, encouraging that there's not a huge movement to cancel Burns just because of his, you know, extramarital affairs and some other things that maybe don't look great today. Yeah, all right. Um, actually, I have a, you talked about the United States, right, how we look at Burns. Um, I want to switch us to, to talking about Burns' night. Before we actually get into the characteristic of the event, I want to talk about its global spread, which is quite impressive. And what impressed me even more was that I was looking, um, I was reading about Burns' night last night, the tradition started pretty soon after he passed away. Like I, there's a, there are some burn societies that compete to be the oldest and um, they have membership records going back to like 1805, 1809. Um, there are burns nights in the United States, very, very early on in continental Europe. Uh, why did people jump on burns so quickly? You know, most, most, great artists don't get a lot of recognition until after their death. And I wonder if it's got like a little bit of an Amy Winehouse effect that he died early and here's this great person we lost. So we need to celebrate him. Um, why, why did Burns spread so quickly after his death, this, this celebration of Burns night? I think there is something of certain Scots feeling regretful that he had been allowed to die so young. Uh, and within four or five years of his death, we get the first burn supper. But actually, if you look at the first Burns Supper, it's only about a dozen of his friends in air. And the, the, the main dish really isn't haggis, it's beef. And the Burns Supper develops through the 19th century. According to Freemasonic ritual, Burns was himself a mason. And it spreads through, if you like, the British Empire, but not only the British Empire, English-speaking parts of the world that have large... Uh, concentrations of Scots, because the Burns Supper itself was very portable. It develops to incorporate Burns's address to a haggis, and the fact that Burns was a songwriter meant that the songs could be sung, some of the poetry could be recited, and so it didn't spring as the complete article. It developed over time, and what happens, either accidentally or because it's just one of those things that it, it does become a kind of perfect thing, it's a very good way for people to celebrate a bit of the winter. The Scots were more keen on Hogmanay rather than Christmas. A bit after Hogmanay, 25th of January, we're still in the dark days, and we have the opportunity, the excuse to celebrate Robert Burns. And the Burns Supper spreads throughout the world so that you find British Army regiments um, celebrating it in the Indian subcontinent, in South Africa, all over the place. And a lot of locals who may have no Scottish connections at all see this and think, that's quite a nice festive occasion, let's adopt it. So is it because naturally Burns and his work and thinking about Burns was a great thing? Is that simply the case? Is there such a thing as genius and greatness or is it an accidental thing? It's difficult to tell. So, for instance, Old Lang Syne sung at the end of Burns' Suppers. The reason that that becomes a worldwide anthem is because the Guy Lombardo Italian-Canadian dance band associated with American Hogmanay at various posh hotels in New York, and eventually it becomes a big feature of the Times Square celebration of New Year. And because of the age of radio, it translates around the world. So in a way, that medium of radio is an accidental thing 
translating that. So I can never finally decide, was it all natural? Was it always going to happen because Burns was great and Burns' celebration was great? Or are these things, as so often is the case, somewhat accidental? You know, in another universe, if it was an episode of Star Trek or something, you would have a a, a supper celebrating. And you do have Shakespeare suppers, but Shakespeare is not celebrated in the popular sense uh, either in Britain or around the world that Burns is. No other writer has that level of popular celebration. And maybe things just clicked into place. A great occasion. He, he didn't much eat haggis, but he wrote about it. He almost single-handedly makes whiskey the Scottish national drink. So all the bits are there, and the guys that come afterwards take the jigsaw bits, place them together, and before we know it, we've got an international festive occasion that goes on to the present day, so that, for instance, at least 9 million people a year apparently attend burn suppers. So that's a huge amount of things going on. And also, as well as local burn societies or local communities, businessmen, lawyers, Caledonian societies, they find this is an occasion you can use. um, It's a very attractive gala occasion you can use to do business hang out with your friends, but also make connections. So there are all kinds of motivations underpinning and sustaining the Burns Supper. And of course, it's great for Scottish food and drink because we're able to put centre stage, or at least we were till the pandemic, some of our top bits of cuisine on show. Dr. Crothers, is is Burns Night celebrated as widely throughout Scotland, or do you, do you find that it's more of a more celebrated throughout the diaspora in an effort to reconnect with their Scottish ancestry and roots? Well, there's no doubt that the biggest concentration of burn suppers are in Scotland, but a project we did at the Centre for Robert Burns Studies, which finished about a year and a half ago, was an interactive burn supper map, and you can go on and look at that. And there are burn suppers on five continents, including actually six, Antarctica. But what you notice, the biggest concentration in the UK, which includes, if I'm allowed to say this, a swingers club in Blackpool. (laughs) So biggest concentration in Scotland. Some people um, in England, scientific research stations overseas. And then if you look at places like Canada, the US, New Zealand, Australia, big concentrations also. But you find them in Argentina, in Brazil, in India. So it is genuinely a worldwide phenomenon. And I would suggest maybe it's got your, your listeners might like to go on and have great fun with our interactive map and see the spread because it really reinforces the claim that we make that Burns is a world writer. What would Robert Burns have thought of Burns Night? Certainly he enjoyed carousing. He really enjoyed socializing with good friends. But he didn't. He wasn't one that was particularly given to like worship of himself. He didn't. It seemed like he ever, you know, lost where he came from. Um, what would he think about Burns Night? Well, there is one letter where he writes jovially, playfully, in years to come, long after I'm dead, my birthday will be marked and celebrated, and people say, "Oh, it's a great prophecy." But actually, he was poking fun at himself. He would be amazed that this came to pass, and in some ways. I'm tempted to say he would have enjoyed these occasions, carousing, drinking. In other ways, he would have thought, this is a bit pompous. And all of this being pinned on one man, 
he would have been quite likely to write satirical poetry about the occasion celebrating himself because he could never resist poking fun at things. One of the things I love about Burns, one of his redeeming human features, is he never takes any, in one way he never takes any human behaviour too seriously. He's got a deep love for all kinds of human beings, but in one sense he thinks there's something a bit ridiculous about most things that we do. And I think that's quite a redeeming thing. It is obviously the opposite of pompa- of pomposity. I wonder if that's a, uh, when, when you're describing Burns, caring about people but also not taking things too seriously, that reminds me of myself a lot. <laughs> is that a Scottish, I mean, not that I'm Scottish, but I wonder if that's a, a gene that maybe got passed down. Um, is that, I'm sure that's a that's an attitude that's really embraced, not taking himself too seriously. And maybe that's why people are so willing to cut him some slack on, on everything else, too. Yeah, well, it's associated with the Scots, and it's a wee bit unfair on the English, because the idea is that the English are a bit up themselves, and the Scots are more <laughs> down to earth. And I think that's very unfair on my many fine English friends. But nonetheless, where I think this does com- uh, come from is the fact that for a long time, historically, we were a poorer, more basic society. We were less civilised, less sophisticated. We had less heirs, fewer heirs and graces. And so there is a Scottish attitude in a smaller country with smaller communities. We're not letting anyone get above themselves. And Burns certainly comes out of that uh, attitude where you're able to mock things, to mock local, and not just local, but big political stupidity. Because Burns... Um, as well as ridiculing people who he thinks are religious hypocrites or whatever in his local community, he will also write about the stupidity of the British Parliament, for instance. You know, if only he were alive today, I would love to see him writing about Boris Johnson <laughs> or Donald Trump. I would pay money for those poems if only we could we could get them. Um, there's an obsession with Burns to such an extent that 60 years after Burns dies... This is going to sound strange. He begins writing again. How does that happen? There's a bunch of Yorkshire spiritualists who start publishing poetry that they claim to have received via seances with Robert Burns. And guess what? He's a really rubbish poet by the time... Poetry is garbage by the time he's writing in the 1850s and 60s. But the idea of Burns as representing some kind of down-to-earth truth and someone we want more of and we want to connect with, there's a fascination with Burns. That's why his poetry has been forged as well as celebrated. That's why we've had um, 2,000 editions of his work, probably over 200 biographies, one way and another. Um, And, you know, as well as Burns Night, um, we've got collectors collecting his work, his first book, the Kilmarnock edition, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, 612 of those were published, three shillings a pop. There are 89 left in the world, and they go for anywhere between seventy dollars and $100,000. And, and American collectors, some of whom I know very well uh, and personally, uh, they will get on private planes to travel to other cities if they think they can pick up a Kilmarnock edition. So there's all this interest in Burns. Um, his afterlife in some ways, including the Burns Supper, is as interesting as his life and work. 
That sounds, that reminds me also when you were speaking of uh, Burns' new work after his death. It it sort of sounds like the Elvis impersonators throughout America who um, <laughs> pay homage to, to, the El- to Elvis through rubbish impersonations also. So <laughs> I guess that's how we honor our, our greats. Do you want to, let's talk about, uh, let's talk, let's shift a little bit and talk about the Burns Supper itself. Um, I know for me, I've, I've looked um, at the, the order of the night, the, the, the things that take place. It honestly sounds a bit intimidating mm-hmm. to get into because it's just, there's, it seems very scripted. What's the atmosphere like at a Burns Supper? Is it, I've seen some here in the United States that are real, that are formal events. Uh, I've seen some that are more laid back. What is a Burns night or a Burns supper supposed to feel like? Yeah. Well, they, they vary enormously. And these days you get a lot of alternative Burns suppers. Um, traditionally, and still to some extent, people will wear dinner suits. I'll be doing one next week where I'm wearing a dinner suit. Everyone's wearing a dinner suit. So there's a level of formality. As you say, there's a set order where you have the Selkirk Grace, the address to the haggis, the meal, and then you'll have the recital of something like Tamashanta. You'll have songs. You'll have the immortal memory that pays tribute to Burns. And there are thousands and thousands of immortal memories that have been delivered by prime ministers, politicians, musicians, all sorts. One of the big changes that's happened is that Burns is caught in... He's, he's, he's picked up early on by European composers like Beethoven and Haydn, and they set his music. And a lot of that material is great. And that's the tradition down to about the 1960s even, uh, Burns' songs being delivered quite formally. But from the 1960s, the folk m- movement really begins to adopt Burns, and you've got a lot of folk renditions these days in Burns' suppers. Everyone from Bob Dylan to the Clancy Brothers to Gene Redpath, they've all acknowledged uh, the greatness of Burns' songs in folk tradition. So these days, as often as not, you'll find... Um, folk settings as much as chamber settings. But the truth is that burn suppers, once upon a time, were quite raucous, even when they were more formal and classical, and they still are. Uh, when I was out living for a while in Wyoming, I did a wee bit of research on a burn supper in Cheyenne, uh, one of the first ones, about 1913, I think it was, and I discovered that there were 13 formal toasts so they toasted a whole bunch of different things, including the American Republic, including the president, but 13 toasts, and you all had to take a good drink. By the end of that, which as far as I can figure, began about half past seven and one to four in the morning, people were not very formal by the end of it. They had a great time. That's, that sounds about right. I was looking at the lists of the list of toasts that were required in a... Uh... I don't know that I would make it to the end of the ceremony, honestly. <laughs> Once, um, about 10 years ago, I left a burn supper in Largs on the Ayrshire coast, and it was a lovely occasion, and I had a lot of drinks, and they put me in a taxi at four in the morning to come back to Glasgow, and I come back, and I had a meeting in Edinburgh at nine o'clock that morning, and I made it. That's one of my <laughs> proudest achievements. The burn supper hasn't killed me yet. <laughs> I think Robert would be quite proud of you. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. Um, I have a question, Dr. Carthers. It, it, it's a little bit of a deviation, but I wanted to touch it earlier and I forgot. We did a podcast 
last summer with a Scottish professor who talked about Alexander Carmichael, who was an excise man, which is something Burns dearly wanted to be, who used his position to go around and, and collect these um, Highland songs and stories and poems. Um, and I see uh, see a lot of connection between him and Burns because I, the Carmichael's being primarily lowland Scots. Um, it seems like Burns really went out of his way to collect things that were in Scots that were from lowland Scotland. Um, and particularly in the United States, when we look at the popularity of things like um, the show Outlander and that book series, uh, American Scots tend to think that real Scotland is in the Highlands. It's it's Gaelic speaking, it's Bonnie Prince Charlie, it's all of that. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about the importance of Burns to the history and the preservation of lowland Scots and that culture? Well, I think the way we would come at that, um, the 15th century lowland poet William Dunbar said there was no music in hell except for the bagpipes. And that's a traditional lowland attitude to the highlands. Robert Burns is one of the first Scottish writers to write sympathetically about the highlands in a poem called Address of Beelzebub. And in that poem, which is a satirical poem, the the devil's treasurer says to the Earl of Bredalbin, who's refusing to allow his tenants who are starving and want to emigrate to Canada, he says, you're not going, you're staying on the land. Uh, you know, I'm not allowing you the freedom to go to a better life. And in this poem, Burns's devil ironically salutes Bredalbin and says, this is great. Let's go even further. These Highlanders are subhuman Let's make their, their women work as prostitutes in Drury Lane, the London Theatre District. Let's take their children and make them work. And, of course, this is Burns actually ironically, be sarcastically angry at what's going on. Burns, the Presbyterian poet, is speaking out on behalf of the, the McDonald's of Glengarry, who are Catholic Highlanders. This, again, is Burns's promiscuous sympathy. And Burns is one of those writers that invents Scotland's or wraps around Scotland its Highland identity. He writes a version of the song My Heart's in the Highlands. He writes Jacobite songs often associated with the Highlanders. And as you imply, he does the same thing in the Lowlands. He becomes an exciseman, a taxman or a gauger, going round checking that people have paid their taxes checking the measurements that they have in barrels of alcohol, etc. And there's a big myth in Scotland that he didn't want to be an exciseman, that it was a compromise. He had a great time as an exciseman because he was going round collecting songs. And his friends, his buddies in the excise service were men a bit like him who all thought that their bosses were jerks, because we all kind of think that, um, and who spoke politics. And although these guys were excisemen, although they were in the service of the crown, they were all quite radical, especially after the French Revolution. They were all in favour of democratic politics. So Burns is touring the country on his own or working with these guys, talking politics, gathering up songs, and he's having a great time from about 1789, 1790, when he's in the excise service for the last six or seven years of his life. And he gets to see more of the country and he is the man who, at that point, followed on later by guys like Walter Scott, is broadcasting to the wider world the notion that Scotland has a Highland identity. Because after the Jacobite Rebellion had been put down in 1746, 
The Highlanders were despised by the Lowlanders and by the English to a large extent. They were people to be kept a close eye on. And Burns writes about Highland culture, including the Jacobites. And that marginalised culture, by the time we get into the 19th century, is becoming the dominant note in what the world thinks of as uh, Scottish identity. Burns would never have worn tartan in his life. And yet what you get at Burns suppers are people with tartan ties or the kilt or tartan trues. And that's fine because things change. But that tartanisation of Scotland, that bringing back of a despised Highland culture all the way down to Outlander, it begins really with Robert Burns because he thinks, I'm a Scot and I want to appreciate the whole of Scotland, Highland and Lowland, different identities. Uh, Because to a large extent, you might argue that down to the mid-18th century and round about the time when Burns is, is born, Scotland culturally is two countries, Highlands and Lowlands. They are very different places. Thank you. That's a really helpful perspective. Um, I would almost say he was too successful in that oftentimes as a, as a Lowland clan, when people make assumptions about what our clan was like, they're thinking exclusively of the Highlands and not the Lowlands at all. So it's a little bit of having to reclaim some of, of that culture for ourselves. And primarily that's in poetry like his and the songs he collected and also Scott's. Um, you talked about another famous poet just then, Walter Scott. And he met Burns, right, as a young man um, and went on to become a, a great Scottish advocate and poet in his own right. Could you tell us a little bit about Burns's legacy on, on Walter Scott? Yeah, there's a very famous painting from 1893 that's now, I think, in New Zealand. And it's the meeting of Robert Burns and Walter Scott in an Enlightenment salon in Edinburgh. And, and Scott is in his early teens, And the myth goes that Burns is admiring a painting and it's got a quotation and no one can tell him where the quotation comes from, but the very literate, the very bright young Walter Scott can. And this one meeting between these two great Scottish romantic writers is celebrated. In Scotland, Robert Burns is often seen as good, as nationalist, even though he didn't really have access to a modern idea of nationalism. He's certainly a patriot. But Burns is seen as good, proto-socialist, nationalist, and Walter Scott, a Tory unionist, and gets a very bad rap. But in many ways, they're both antiquarians, both collecting folk tales, songs, legends. They're doing very similar things, but they're not seen as the same. One of the letters that I uncovered about 25 years ago um, and published has Walter Scott saying, my favourite Scottish writer is Robert Burns because there are some people that would like to see them in competition or see Scott as uh, unappreciative of Burns. But they're involved in the same kind of patriotic, restorative Scottish project. Their politics are a bit different, but Walter Scott learns a lot from Robert Burns. And one of the things, even as a Tory, even as someone who's seen as a bit posh, what Burns and Scott and a whole lot of other writers begin to do in that period is they begin to take literature and it's no longer just about kings and queens. I mean, I love Shakespeare, but, you know, think Hamlet, etc. It begins to be literature of the ordinary folk. So that when Walter Scott writes his history novels, yeah, you've got the big characters, the kings, the queens, the politicians, but he usually has fictional small characters caught up in history. 
both Burns and Scott are interested in how the ordinary individual gets caught up in big historical events. Sometimes these big historical events overwhelming the individual. So, you know, the Burns poem that I mentioned, Address of Beelzebub, that's about the ordinary folk who don't have a voice caught up in big historical events. The Earl of Bradalbin, the powerful man deciding their fates. Similarly, when Walter Scott writes his poetry, it's often about individuals who are caught up in wars or caught up in um, uh, demonstrations in the town or whatever, and individuals who um, are subject to forces greater than themselves. And the Romantic period in general in literature across the world does a lot of that. And Burns and Scott are in there early on talking about big history and the ordinary man or indeed woman. A lot of uh, authors that I've I've read this week, getting to know Burns, um, argued that he he wasn't a romantic in the sense that we think of. That he might have bucked against some of that, um, particularly. Although other Burns could be prone to like a effusive language and being very flowery, most of his writing, as you said, was very very real and um, practical things. Um, mm. What do you th- what do you feel about about Burns? Is is he properly categorized as a romantic? poet, or as he stands somewhere in his own category? Well, the idea of the Romantic poet is only really uh, a term coined in the 19th century. None of the Romantic poets, you know, really, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Blake, Burns, would have, would have known that term. But actually, one of the things about Romanticism, as Wordsworth says, it's about the real language of men. And one of the reasons that Wordsworth loves Burns is because he sees a landscape and peasant culture, and not just a peasant culture, a culture in the towns as well, that he can identify with. You know, So literature isn't just about important people doing important things with important language. So that is part of the romantic thing, as well as, you know, you rightly imply lyricism, effusiveness, but alongside these things also realism. Romanticism does realism. Let's look at the world really. And also... Let's see lyrical, transcendent things in ordinary experience. You know, and that's a tradition that goes on down the line to at least Walt Whitman and beyond. You've got it in spades in America where, you know, let's look at the the mass of teeming life, often ordinary life, mundane life, brutal life, but see something noble or transcendent in that. And Whitman and, and other writers later in the 19th century are clearly heirs to the kind of stuff that Burns was doing. And the other thing, of course, that Burns does is he writes about nature, like other romantic writers. And that idea of looking at nature, not just using nature, but valuing nature to some extent, that's the basis of a lot of attitudes that we're still refining today about respect for the environment, eco-criticism, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we're still not getting it right. We're still messing up the the planet. You mentioned that Burns writes poetry with the language of a real man. You know, he's seen real things that people would recognize. Um, I think his most realist poem that is a, obviously a big part of Burns' night is addressed to a haggis. A haggis is not a beautiful thing. Well, it's a delicious thing. It's not something that's lovely to behold. Uh, and I imagine even the ceremonial cutting of it is pretty graphic. Um, tell us a little bit about that poem. Is that a poem he wrote seriously? Is Was that a poem written in jest? Um Bonus points if you're willing to recite it for us, because it would sound much better in a Scottish accent. 
Fair for your honest sonsy face, great chieftain of the pudding race. That's the first couple of lines. I'll go no further for now. It's written as a kind of joke because he is obviously suggesting that the haggis is a creature in its own right, whereas, in fact, it's the inner bits of sheep, its lungs, it's, um, uh, it's, it's all kind of things that you might actually throw away. But although it's a kind of comedy, the serious point that Burn is, is making, which I've mentioned already, is that simple food is often the most nutritious and that we're a wee bit too fussy. We turn our noses up at things that, um, you know, we, we maybe shouldn't. And, you know, it stands in a line of anti-Scottish prejudice that he's responding to. One of his favourite novels was a novel called The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker. And in that novel, the most stupid character travelling from England to Scotland doesn't want to go to Scotland because she thinks that all she'll get to eat there are sheep's heads. And it takes her 10 pages to work out that where there are sheep's heads, there must be sheep's bodies. And so that novel, read by Burns, and Burns' to a haggis, are a kind of response. You want to see something disgusting? I'm going to give you something disgusting. There you go. But the joke, or the, the, the serious bit of the joke is, actually, this tastes good, and it's good for you. It's a bit like, you know, I can't help thinking of Native Americans who traditionally wasted no part of the animal, used it for food, used it for um, clothing, for shelter, all of that. Burns into Haggis is implicitly saying we're a very wasteful society. Who would have thunk it, you know? Um, so to a Haggis, yes, it's a joke, it's good fun, it sets up a nice dinner, but Burns is also saying think about what you think is sophisticated and what you might turn your nose up at as being primitive. You know, it's like sometimes the simplest foods taste best before we've mass manufactured them and put them in uh, chemicals, etc., into them. So haggis, uh, and by the way, I'll, I'll make a confession, vegetarian haggis shouldn't work, but it does. Do you know why it works? Because the secret is all in the spices and the way in which it's blended. Um, haggis is a great delicacy, and whisper it, the Chinese possibly invented it because they invented everything. So it becomes a Scottish dish because Burns says it's a Scottish dish. And that's often the way it happens with Robert Burns. Life imitates art or fiction. I'm afraid we might get cancelled after that confession. <laughs> Dr. Carthus, I have to tell you that I was very hesitant about haggis, as most Americans probably are. And yeah, it was fantastic. I don't know what the spices are, but they're delicious. And I would love to be able to import it to America, but it's still a blacklisted item. Yes, for a while you were able to import it, and hopefully you will be again. I think some people I know were bringing it down from Canada, you know, but uh, yeah, hopefully you can again because it's it's produced in a perfectly healthy way, and there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to import it, but so it goes. Dr. Carruthers, will you tell us more about the foods that a person would run into at a Burns supper? What kinds of things are typically served at the events? Well, very often you might get Cullen skink soup, you know, kind of a very nice fish soup. Um, or you may also sometimes either as a, a main course or as a starter, because sometimes haggis, neeps and tatties 
haggis, swedes and potatoes. Sometimes that's just the starter. And then they move on to roast beef. And as often as not, we will get um, something like cheesecake or Kranachan as dessert <clears throat> and a cheese board. So it is a good excuse to have a four or five course meal. But I think people would feel cheated if haggis didn't appear either as a starter or as a main course. Um, but that's usually that's usually the way the way it goes. <laughs> so it sounds like the haggis is a central dish and not really an option, right? It's not really optional. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the etiquette of a burn supper? Certainly, we're not talking about highbrow because Robert yeah. himself might have been pretty opposed to that. But uh, there are lots mm-hmm. of toast involved, and generally, toast yeah. have a certain order that they follow. If someone's new going to a Burns Night Supper, what things do they need to be aware of? Well, the main thing to do taste? is to sit back and enjoy it and be attentive to the speakers. Usually, the top table is piped in. And among others, the top table will include the person who's doing the set piece speech, the immortal memory, 15, 20 minutes, that reflects on and celebrates Robert's life, uh, Burns' life. And then the other speakers will usually comprise, for instance, the toast to the lassies from a, a man and the reply from the lassies. And some of the best speeches happen there because it's the opportunity for men and women to have a go at one another. Although usually the men are to say nice things about the women and then the women rip into um, to, to the men. Um, and, and, and you know, by that time, by the time we get to those, people have had a few drinks. They want some jokes. They want a, a, a laugh. So, for instance, when I was at recently, um, the women said, yeah, I've got a lot of good things to say about men. Take my my husband, for instance. He um, He does the work of two men. Laurel and Hardy, and that's the kind of thing that you, you you get. So so you know, burn suppers are quite well structured, where you get a chance to have the meal, to have a chat. You see the formal things, you get some songs, you wind down, you get the more or less formal immortal memory, and then you get a bit more fun as you've had a few more drinks. So the pace goes up and down, and even if it, they usually happen over at least three or four hours. Um, it's not too full on. Just, you know, my advice to anyone attending one for the first time, go with the flow, enjoy it, but um, don't don't talk when the speakers are speaking, that's all. Perfect. I'm actually going to my first one tonight, and I'm excited about it because it's being put on by, I think, the Shriners, so sort of low-level masonry. Um, and it's in North Dakota, so we are almost certain to have <laughs> copious amounts of alcohol. I will report back to the coast. Well, Dr. Carruthers, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the uh, Clan Carmichael Radio podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about Burns, about Burns Nights, about Burns Suppers, and uh, and we really appreciate you doing this. How can listeners learn more about you and about your work? And specifically, um, where can they find the international map of Burns Night celebrations? And also tell us a little bit about the Burns collection that the University of Glasgow is working on. Well, if you want to find out a bit more, I would maybe suggest going on to the Centre for Robert Burns Studies at the University of Glasgow. And there we've got the international map. We've also got uh, specially commissioned recordings, both songs and spoken words. And these are related to the new Oxford University Press 
multi-volume edition of Robert Burns, for which I'm general editor. So Centre Robert Burns Studies, University of Glasgow, you can find all the stuff ongoing there, ongoing news, conferences. Uh, we have an annual conference every year at the Birthplace Museum in Alloway, where Burns was born. We have other events throughout the year. One or two in future we'll be doing for international audiences, including one with Simon Fraser, University in Canada. But first port of call, Centre for Robert Burns Studies, University of Glasgow. And I'm always happy to receive emails from people and direct them and be helpful if I can, if they're interested in Burns. Well, you've certainly been helpful for us today and and really interesting to talk to. And I appreciate you answering my email and joining us here on the show. So again, we really appreciate it. And thanks so much. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. And happy Burns Night when it comes. Thanks again so much to Dr. Gerard Carruthers for taking the time to join us on the show today and for such an interesting discussion. To learn more about Dr. Carruthers and the work being done at the University of Glasgow's Center for the Robert Burns Studies, you can follow the links in the show description. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone else you think might enjoy the shows. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or subscribe to the new Clan Carmichael USA Substack page at clancarmichael.substack.com. If you like what we're doing, please leave your feedback. Your reviews help to promote the show and make it easier for others to find us. So until next time, toujours prêt. See you all soon.